0: Good evening, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome back to 5x15. We're kicking off our new season tonight with a very special event about psychedelics, consciousness, and how we experience the world. And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our two speakers. Andy Mitchell is a neuropsychologist and therapist. He is specialized in treating patients with rare brain conditions, head injuries, and epilepsy, and in the application of mindfulness for neurological patients. As a therapist, he's worked with people with a range of mental health disorders. In his acclaimed new book, Ten Trips, which we'll be speaking about this evening, he makes the case for psychedelics as a way to re-enchant us with the world. Andy is joined this evening by Anil Seth, a leading British researcher in the field of consciousness science. He is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, New Scientist, Scientific American, and Granter. In his latest book, Being You, he offers a radical new theory of the self. So get ready to have your minds expanded this evening. And remember that you can order copies of both 10 Trips and Being You from our independent bookseller, Newham Bookshop. Please post your questions for Andy and Anil this evening in the Zoom Q&A box, and they'll get to as many as they can in the latter part of their discussion. That just leaves me to say a very warm welcome to Andy and Anil. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jack. And hello, everybody, um, wherever you are, behind there somewhere. Um, Yeah, I've been really looking forward to this too. Uh, So I've very much enjoyed reading Andy's book, Ten Trips, which... Has been described by me, it seems, as an incisive, deeply personal and beautifully written account of the power, the uses and the modern misuses of psychedelics. Highly recommended, which, which it is. So it's been a really fun to have the chance to um, to go through it again. So how we're going to do this, I think, is we're going to um, talk to each other for a little bit and then open it up to, to Q&A. Is that right, Andy?
2: That sounds great. Yeah, thanks, Anil, and hi to everyone.
1: So I think that how we decided we wanted to start this is we've both ended up writing books about consciousness, um, with a kind of emphasis on the nature of experience as well, rather than necessarily other things. And it was yeah, you know, Jack mentioned Andy that you have a a background as a neuropsychologist as well, um, and then you know this extraordinary tour of of different kinds of psychedelics in all sorts of different settings. So I wonder if you could just you know, tell us a little bit about how you got into this, what your trajectory has been?
2: Well, I've just about 25 about 20 years ago, um I stopped taking drugs altogether. Uh I fell foul of overconsumption in various ways. And it just 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 didn't suit me. And so relatively happily for the last 20 years i've lived uh, a drug-free life uh, and as as people will no doubt know the ideas of set and setting are quite important to uh one's experience of psychedelics and so I mean, do you just so mean said, by
1: drug-free do you mean do you, are you including like alcohol and caffeine and i mean how how do you yeah i mean I did, yeah, def-
2: definitely alcohol mm-hmm. uh, so alcohol and drugs Uh, went to get recreational drugs, went together for me. I worked in the film industry and it was just part and parcel of uh, that lifestyle. And so I drew a line under it. Shortly after that, I uh, started reading um, Oliver Sacks and, in fact, Gerald Edelman, who I think you worked worked with. um, And I got sucked into neuroscience and worked in clinical health and then in clinical neurology and neurosurgery for a number of years. And I kept an eye on psychedelic research and... I, I, I suppose I, um, my set around psychedelics was initially one of sort of mild scepticism. And I think, sort of philosophically, I think of um, the, the great framing narrative for our, the background narrative for our existence at the moment is climate change. And having worked in mental health for uh, a number of years and seen the sort of state of psychiatry and the lack of neuropharmacological innovation the, the 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 sometimes marginal efficacy of psychotherapy to see psychedelics arrive center stage as an antidote that was achieving remarkable results and that these this antidote was somehow green and organic and was has been part of our biosphere and Gaia and such like it it, it raised my skepticism so i i looked i looked at uh, I began to look at the literature and I could see uh that there was um, you know there was definitely hopeful things happening, but I wanted to sort of take a um, a deep dive into it and i think I think one thing that I thought was that and this is sort of First of all, that psychedelics were a test case for what science does to something and how science and its research proclivities, its limits of research, its overlap, particularly with drugs, with money, on the one hand, how how that happens. And then on the other hand, how broadly as a culture, what we do with new things and how we kind of uh, are just inevitably want solutions quick solutions to problems and how and to what extent psychedelics might fall into this kind of into those kind of pitfalls and so i i'd written a couple of books on neurology and i uh, pitched to my publisher that i would um just dive in i've got a sort of uh uh i don't know i don't know i, I just like the idea of rather quixotic journeys so i i took a sabbatical and uh um, set the book up as taking ten different substances in ten different uh, contexts, so that I could survey all of the different nuanced models for psychedelic conge- uh, consumption and participation. And so, so that was the that was the the yeah that was the sort of genesis of the idea. Mm. And then, and then the book was the outcome.
1: So the book is it's more than a, a tour of. Different you know, tasting menu of psychedelics, and perhaps you know, more than a skeptical take on on how the psychedelic industry is being developed, but you, would it be right to say it's, it's sort of using what's happening in psychedelics now as a as a way of performing a social commentary on how we yeah how we make new things, make use of new things? Yeah, uh, or, yeah exactly or, re- or make you know, use again of old things, or repurpose old things in it, new so ways.
2: Repurpose old things, and the role of science in that, the, mm. particularly the role of science in that narrative, and what that role and what science does to other forms of expression and modes of culture, and what our Western uh, notions of science and Western expression does to other cultures etc, and just just how way, just how psychedelic seems to bring together it's a crossroads for different ways of speaking about the world or for speaking about notions of health or illness and and how and how it sort of therefore contains all the idioms we have for taking ourselves both too seriously and not seriously enough, so that was the kind of that was the kind of uh, dual access point for it
1: and is science responsible for that is science the sort of established cultural process we have that that leads us to take ourselves too seriously and not seriously enough or what what else is science doing what is it that that shows up when you look at science through the lens of psychedelics rather than the other way around which is what typically people do
2: well it's, I think it's there's some there's some ir- irony that uh, uh, that a type of science um has led the way in repurposing psychedelics. Um in that you know science is just, you know, is frankly is, is you know is the de facto rational uh, uh is the thing that separates us uh, from the animals more than anything else. It's it's the seat of our reason. Its principles are unchallenged and unchallengeable uh, at at their root, and yet there's something about psychedelics that's saying, in order to unstick ourselves from our own individual reasoning, we have to experience some form of insanity, some form of derangement, Mm -hmm. some form of our fragility in the face of our best best efforts to navigate the world. So there's something, you know, at the most literal level, counter. Counter reasonable about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you think there is a shared feature across psychedelics of there's it's introducing some kind of temporary derangement. This is got that insanity. It's definitely
2: got that aspect to it. And, you know, and I think that that's, I mean, science can accommodate that for sure. And I, I think, um, you know, your book, uh, which had a big influence on me at the, t- at the time that I read it a couple of years ago, just shows what. Uh, um, a lucid grounding in not knowing and added with curiosity about phenomenology, how far that can take you through the kind of, um, towards deconstructing some of the fortresses that science or the ideology of science creates for itself mm-hmm. around something like consciousness. Partic- well, consciousness is the sort of de facto thing. It's the last quixotic thing that you know, science has. Uh,
1: has set for itself and um, there 's a key word that came up there in, in what you just said, which was phenomenology, right so um, phenomenology being well as far as I understand it, the study of of experience itself you know, rather yeah. than rather than other things and this this comes through very strongly in your book is is the phenomenological aspects, the phenomenological properties across the different kinds of experiences i wonder if you could say a bit more about about that yeah i mean so i my my background
2: uh before i got into science my background was in in literature and philosophy and i think i came to see psychedelic experiences really as sort of it sounds so pretentious but as to kind of sort of art forms that uh the Normally, under-experienced parts of the brain is capable is capable of laying out for us in ways that are just, by definition, uh, shocking, surprising, beautiful, to the point that I could, being being kind of deeply agnostic myself, I could feel the pull of wanting to attribute the masterliness and the artfulness of some of these experiences to something beyond. Uh, the brain Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not it was no surprise to me to meet as I traveled the world people who had gone all the way and gone from agnosticism to forms of animism particularly forms of animism and belief in uh, the trees or belief in weather systems or Mm -hmm. belief in cultures they'd never experienced before you know adopting their belief and to me that's 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 really what uh, in, a, in a, in a, I can't remember who it was that said that poems, um, mis, uh, poems are where we go to. the The, the, the received, the, the received thing is that poems are where we go to for wisdom,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and psychedelics are where we are. Uh, therefore, psychedelics are where we go to for wisdom. But for me, poems and psychedelics are where we go for to deconstruct wisdom, to disabuse wisdom in some way, to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, To see how our brains can put things together, and we will then fill in something uh, sort of remarkably artistic around it.
1: Mm -hmm. To to shape our psyches. mm, To look under the hood a little bit, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think this this um, the fact that a number of the people that you've met were drawn away from agnosticism or even atheism towards some forms of animism is is that attributable to the specific kinds of phenomenology that are associated with the psychedelics that that they were taking or the psychedelics and the cultural context yeah, I, mean, I,
2: I think it's I, I mean i haven't studied it formally but i think hmm. the number of people i met that would say that they met some kind of entity that was separate from themselves hmm. and that entity then told them about the secrets of the universe or what they should do with the rest of their lives. And by and large, that, you know, they, as far as they were concerned, they were ad, now adhering to that. And I think mm. there's been studies in the last couple of years looking at how people shift metaphysical or can shift metaphysical positions on the basis of taking psychedelics.
1: Yeah, that's think, right. Yeah. Chris Lutterby uh, I just, think has done some of these studies. Right? Chris Lutterby has done yeah. it. And,
2: and, mm. and I think, you know, that as, as a clinician that, has some implications for um, inf- if, if these are ever to be used routinely in in, in the british healthcare then we've got, we've got to do due diligence with informed consent, et cetera, then that needs to be built into uh, what we're telling our patients about the possible consequences of psychedelic experiences
1: right you might end that you might end up believing something completely different about the nature of the universe <laughs> yeah you might
2: be yeah right at, at what cost are you cured of your depression
1: yeah. Yeah, but that's interesting. I mean, the, the I think it's a fascinating question about how people's metaphysical beliefs, which is to say, sort of, you know, beliefs about the relationship between consciousness and the material world, or the existence of, you know, some higher powers and things like that. How how does that change? I mean, it, I remember in in my experiences, um, it sort of went the the other way around, sort of like, well. The experiences i 've had on under psychedelics, which are far fewer than, than yours, far less varied as well i think are well what that's that 's exactly what I would expect to happen if my conscious experiences were generated by the brain um, mm-hmm. and you start screwing around with with that process. I was yeah. reminded of of you know there are ways for instance in which you can induce out of body experiences i mean sometimes this can happen in psychedelics, but it can also yeah. happen. Yeah, you know, in other situations, like through brain stimulation in particular ways, you know, some people would say even through virtual reality. Though I'm not quite sure it's the same thing. And of course, you can have the experience of being outside your body and maybe looking at it, and you can draw two diametrically opposite conclusions right. from that experience. You know, one could be, "Well, wow, you now I take my experience not only seriously but also literally." So because I experience myself as outside of my body, consciousness can leave the body and and you know, move around. Um, yeah, right. Or you could say I take my experience seriously but not literally. And so you come to the conclusion that, ah, the first-person perspective that I've always taken for granted is something that the brain is always um, under the hood just cobbling together. And you can... Yeah you screw around with that process, you screw around with that aspect of your experience. So it becomes, in in a sense, it smuggles in even a deeper materialism because it, it might reveal aspects of your phenomenology that you hadn't considered even required a material basis. So I guess my prior as a neuroscientist meant I was more susceptible to taking something like a psychedelic experience and in a sort of confirmation bias way, finding in that, Further evidence for uh, materialist uh, metaphysics, but it seems yes. that most people indeed go the other way. You know, they right, right, and I,
2: and I and I can yeah, I think that's right. I think I suppose there are there are moments like an out of body experience or an entity uh, speaking. There are moments that one can understand within within the terms of neuroscience quite easily in the way that you say it's within a physicalist tradition. I suppose the thing that is most seductive to me though is that say there's 500, people talk about a a trip uh, being a good trip or a bad trip, but really just like perception itself, it's made up of a a gazillion different bits of information that are uh, smoothed over into Mm -hmm. one or several narratives. And I think that the, the the most astonishing thing is that uh, that when one is the is the sense that taken together as a whole the trip can feel like it's been put together by a master orchestrator that it couldn't have been put together in any other way that all billion bits are mm-hmm. pointing to many different insights that you can that are reducible and that weren't reducible before that moment and it's it's very very difficult to resist the urge then for for me even to 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 well just to to want to say that there are mysteries mm-hmm. to the brain that just can, at least to come up with that kind of low level agnostic mysticism and say there are things about the brain that are just you know staggering in what in what uh, in their capacities to astonish us
1: mm-hmm.
2: what do you think of that
1: well, the, the the idea that there's there's a space for mystery still. There's a space for mystery, and there's a space that
2: that somehow that the, the the greatest work of art might be just the way that thing, the way that perceptions are being arranged at any given moment. That life itself, as as Hamlet says, I think yeah. life is in, is the slow artist. We could never we could never make it up.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I was I was just thinking. Of, as well um about this what you were saying about the the sort of the significance a well orchestrated psychedelic experience seems to have like the fact that that it seems to be pointing to something it seems to be laden with with salience and just wondering whether that's actually because of the the content of the psychedelic experiences or whether it's just another aspect of the general phenomenology that things have a salience. You know, much as in in um and and of course, originally psychedelics were described as psychomimetic substances because they were yeah, yeah. was argued that they mimicked um forms of psychosis. And I think you know that idea has rightly been uh fallen a bit by the wayside. But one aspect where there might be similarities is in this feeling of great significance to everything. That can be quite common in psychosis as well can't it
2: yeah right I, I suppose that yeah I, sp- I can I can accept that to a point of a point to a point, but if you know it take for example um, the sort of tradition of psychedelics and nature rather than mm-hmm. psychedelics as studied in the lab it's psychedelics taken in a forest or psychedelics looking at a, a grassy field, and there's something about and i think different psychedelics have different uh, qualities in this regard but if you're looking out across a field of swaying grass then normally if you're not a poet you might say oh well i can see mm-hmm. i can see that this looks somewhat like the sea but it seems that psychedelics open up every single metaphorical portal of what grass <laughs> moving through the wind looks like that it's all there all the time mm. uh, in normal perception it's available in normal perception but psychedelics just allow it to be framed, uh, mm. sort of synchronously uh, at the same, so that you're seeing all these possibilities at the same time. I'm not. I'm not. It's a sort of platonic psychedelic trip.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that that echoes the the more literal meaning of the word psychedelic, doesn't it? Which is mind manifesting. So there, right. there are these aspects of our perception or what our brain is 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 likely doing all the time that in normal perception don't. Either they sort of skate below our attention, or skate below our cog- cognitive access, or just skate below our conscious perception. They they don't become manifest in in phenomenology.
2: Right. So I think
1: I think th- you know, that that does make that does make a lot of sense. And of course that that resonates with a lot of other observations about psychedelics that they sort of involve a certain amount of synesthesia too. There's a lot of mixing of right. the senses which which is a, if you if you think of it that's almost a precondition for metaphor right
2: right, right exactly
1: yeah that we're looking for this crosstalk be- between the senses but i didn't mean to swerve your question earlier about um the quote from hamlet and i can't remember what it was now but the i think for me that the um one of the great things that psychedelics allows us to see. And in fact, one, what, the thing that studying consciousness from whatever perspective reveals, whether it's through psychedelics or you know, in, in my, most of my work, it's just normally in, in the lab doing other kinds of boring experiments and, and such, like, is it does reveal how extraordinary our everyday experience is because it's so easy to take it for granted. And, you know, you you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes and and there's the world. And it doesn't seem like anything particularly dramatic or remarkable is is going on. Um, But, of course, what's happening is this everyday almost miracle of your brain creating the subjective experience of a world and of a self from noisy and ambiguous sensory electrical signals which are only ever in- indirectly related to things which we'll never have direct perception of anyway. It's always a, always a construction. So this is another thing actually I've been interested in about psychedelics. There's again, I think, two, two views. Um, one is that a little bit like what you were saying, psychedelics almost it, it takes away the filters. It allows us to see what we would not normally see. And if you push that view to to an extreme, yeah, you know, it can be I've said that psychedelics allows you to see reality more as it is than in the blinkered, filtered way that that we often do. Um, but then the other way to think of it is that it doesn't allow us to see reality more as it is. In fact, our everyday perception is probably geared to objective reality in in ways that are more Robust, you know, from a from a sort right. of survival oriented perspective. Right. Um, but what psychedelics does show is is that that itself is still is still a kind of construction. Yeah, that it reveals that all of our perceptual experiences are are you know works of art by the brain for the brain.
2: Right. I think I think in being you or elsewhere, you've described yourself as a physicalist but agnostic, with regards to
1: with, with regards to what? The truth, I suppose, in the ultimate way. I mean, yes. So I I I, I do describe myself as a sort of pragmatic materialist physicalist, by which I mean that. materialism physicalism i'll use the two synonymously here is is basically the idea that objective reality exists there is stuff you know exactly what this stuff is who really knows best ask a physicist it's it's complicated out there um but there is stuff independently of our conscious experiences of anything so there was stuff before there were subjects or or any organism that had any experience and that consciousness is somehow a property of stuff organized and interacting in particular ways so i mean th- this is set in in contrast to to idealism which is the idea that you know the primary mode of existence is is consciousness or mind and, and stuff is a sort of reflection of that um or panpsychism the other sort of which, which has been getting a lot more play recently people like philip goff which is the no, there's, there's stuff, but there's also consciousness. Consciousness is also fundamental, yeah. um, which is a view I don't find particularly uh, useful. It's not that I, it's, it's, it's obviously wrong. It just doesn't really help. And so that, that, me- that explains why I'm a sort of pragmatic materialist, because I, I find it the most useful core assumption to make when trying to understand things about consciousness. Yeah. Um, and of course, materialism in Jet ge- has been a very productive philosophy that's driven scientific insights over hundreds of years. It doesn't mean it's fundamentally right. You know, it may right. be that 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 materialism will fall short of explaining right. how and why consciousness is part of the universe, but it hasn't fallen short just because it hasn't got there yet doesn't mean yep. it's necessarily going to fail. Yeah. And it's still, I think is our best current bet because it it generates testable hypotheses that have explanatory and predictive power, and and, and that's what we need. And then it's an open question. Will it fail? Will we need recourse to some other metaphysics? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's a long way to go. The brain is complicated and matter itself is extremely complicated. So the resources of materialism have not been exhausted by any means, I don't think.
2: I mean, do you think, do you think, I mean,
1: do you think there's, Anything about um, the
2: the Renaissance in psychedelics overlaps because there's um, such you know high-profile interest in consciousness these days.
1: I mean, there's there's I'm just and
2: just sorry, just a, and yeah. the second part of that would be: is there anything special about psychedelics in what it might contribute
1: to furthering the understanding of consciousness? I think for sure on on. on yeah let's let's think about both so there's been a an interesting sort of historical synchronicity or, or parallel between the study of consciousness in general and the rehabilitation and or renaissance of psychedelics so you know for a lot of the 20th century it was pretty illegitimate to to study consciousness within neuroscience and psychology um It'd been ostracized because you know, arguably because it, it is difficult. It's it's a it's a topic that has unique difficulties because it the thing you're trying to study is intrinsically private and subjective, and c- has this air of metaphysical mystery about it as well. But on the other hand, it is perfectly possible to study consciousness. I mean, the has the great advantage of being human scale, um, realized in billions of different instances. Um, and you know, available right here, right now. I think of some of the other grand mysteries of like what happened at the Big Bang. It's was that's very far away, very long ago. Can't intervene on it. Very difficult to study. Or quantum, you know, what's the nature of objective reality? How do we understand quantum mechanics? Very, very small. Very hard to do. Brains are human size, and you can put them in scanners and so. So it's fantastically easy in in that way. So there, it's possible to study. Consciousness, and it just took a long time for it to um regain its lost legitimacy and part of that same trajectory I think happened with psychedelics, but for somewhat different reasons right I mean there was of course there was a hugely political angle to why psychedelics were suppressed for so long um and the resurgence in consciousness science I think predated the Renaissance of psychedelics, probably by you know, a decade or, or two, maybe. Sure, um, But there is now a, a, a synergy between them because you know, it comes back to the mind manifesting property. I mean, if you think about how one might want to study consciousness, well, one of the things researchers like me always try to do or, or find ways to do is is intervene. You want to change a system and change experience. And of course, psychedelics do this. You give somebody a small amount of a of a particular chemical compound, and their experiences change so dramatically in a, in much more radical ways than is possible using most of the, the methods that we have in psychology labs, where you can say, Oh, like you you saw some dots going left or some dots going right. I mean, great, you can learn a lot that way. But you're not deconstructing how you know, the the sort of structural aspects of how consciousness unfolds in general you're not you're not unpacking the structure of consciousness very much but psychedelics can do that in a controlled controllable way and of course you can as people like Robin carter Harris have done you can put people in brain imaging and and begin to connect the dots and begin to um understand what's happening in the brain globally because we know very well for many psychedelics what happens at the chemical level. LSD, yeah. psilocybin uh, bind to serotonin receptors um, and we know where those serotonin receptors are. It's very well understood. But the the gap between knowing that and understanding how and why our experience changes so dramatically, that's where I think the action and the opportunity is. Um, you know what's happening at a whole brain level that can account for for these changes so it's a very very powerful tool for consciousness research completely independently of any of any of this um, therapeutic value which i think we should talk about a little bit as well because i think this is central aspects of your your book i mean uh, i think your book is a brilliant sequel to Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, which, which seemed to be a book about, was it 10 years ago now? Was it already? It was 2000, 2018,
2: so just oh, not over that long five ago, years ago. Actually. Yeah, um, coming up to six years.
1: Okay. I mean, that really seemed to, to catalyze a much more widespread interest in, in psychedelics you know, outside of specific communities um, and probably did a lot to kickstart a lot of what we might now call the psychedelic industry.
2: Yeah, I think there's even there's even something in psychedelic research called the Michael Poll controlling for the Michael Pollan effect. I think one problem with psychedelic research, clinical research, is that people's right. expectation of healing is so strong, uh, and and Michael Pollan is you know uh, comically responsible for kickstarting that snowball, But it's the, the the clinical research faces the task of how to mask or mask you can't mask psychedelics but how can you um mute people's expectancies about change because yeah. because but, but you know for example recently some of the attempts to uh, show the efficacy of microdosing in particular have not really crossed the threshold of placebo and and there's a lot of debate about how strong the placebo is in in um in 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 more macro doses as well Mm -hmm. and i think i do i mean at least when i first started digging around in a couple of years ago there was just such a strong wish amongst the psychedelic research community for um psychedelics to work and that's really understandable because so little has worked pharmacologically Mm -hmm. for people uh, struggling with um uh, mental health diagnoses and i think i think that as a consequence of that, some of the research that was done um, just made, made two larger claims on two smaller effect sizes. Uh, to my mind, from this vantage point, after having written the book, I think there's no doubt that psychedelics can have a transformative effect on some people. Um, how long that lasts uh, and the nature of that transformation it, it is it's still too early to say, but I still think that for many people you know for many people who are struggling with long term uh severe and enduring mental health diagnoses psychedelics are not are not going to change the material circumstances of their life or the materiality of their brain in significant ways i think i think that um, i think uh, i think there's been overclaims for that with psychedelics
1: so you think the pendulum might have swung too far the other way? I think, right. and I think it's beginning
2: to, I mean, apart from the fact that it's now, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry, mm-hmm. I think there is more realism about um, uh, uh, about caution in terms of making claims about what works for whom. And there's so, I mean, I think it, it, we're talking about the clinical research, but there's so little been, and I know there's, I know Robin Carr Harris and others have done a lot about brain imaging, but there's still a lot to be done in terms of um, mapping the phenomenology scientifically. Mm -hmm. And that's what's always impressed me about your work, it's been so phenomenologically curious. And I I, I think that there's very little been done. uh, uh, I mean, there's so much that could be done and so little that has been done thus far. And I I, I suppose just to attack a little bit, and I, I was reading recently, and I covered it briefly in the book, about some uh, virtual reality software called mm. Isness, Isness Distributed, which gives people psychedelic-like experiences, usually in groups. And it's been found, it's been so, it, the very similitude of the experience is so strong that the effect sizes of spiritual experiences and ego death is at least as strong as psychedelics. So there's, there's obviously something beyond the neuropharmacology of it. And that made me think of um, your involvement with um, the Dream Machine, mm. um, which people may not be familiar with. Would you just say a little about that, Neil?
1: Sure. So, um, yeah, the Dream Machine was was a, a public art science project. You went to it, Andy, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, yeah. Which which ran in in twenty twenty two. I keep wanting to say last year, but it's now in twenty twenty two. And it's based on. A very simple technique to induce visual hallucinations. Uh, and the simple technique is using bright stroboscopic light on closed eyes. So the fact that this generates visual hallucinations had been known since the late 1950s, um, discovered sort of jointly by Gray Walter, who was one of the pioneers, a crazy, crazy kind of British polymath neuroscientist bomb disposal expert wife swapper kite surfer all kinds of crazy things he did (laughs) um and he noticed that bright lights flickering very fast with closed eyes gave rise to experiences of colors and shapes and sometimes more complicated things as well and he has a beautiful chapter in his 1953 book called revelation by flicker where he talks about this and then there was a beat generation artist brian gyson who um Inbe- came up with the word dream machine and he b- basically built a low tech version of this which was a bright light um, suspended above a turntable and there was like some cardboard cutout with slits in that gave a stroboscopic effect when the turntable rotated so he made these dream machines and he wanted to commercialize them actually and sort of make them very very widely available but for, the- for various hilarious reasons that, that didn't work out um, and so th- it was kind of forgotten about this this dream machine thing and in my lab, we got interested in it about 10 years ago, more now, I think, when we saw some Austrian company visiting and, and they'd brought this strobe setup. And I was very skeptical I didn't think it was going to work at all, but it really did. You know, you sit in front of this powerful strobe light and you get vivid, for me, really deep, uh, saturated, oversaturated, hypersaturated colors and fast-changing geometric patterns. I think it's fascinating because the light is just white. So there's an interesting dissociation between the stimulus and and the phenomenology again. So this was something we were doing in the back burner for ages, but then the opportunity came up um, through, again, various hilarious reasons involving Brexit, surprisingly, to develop the dream machine as a collective experience for thousands of people. So we did this in collaboration with with the, the musician John Hopkins and some architects, Assemble Collective, and built dream machines which housed basically 30, 20 or 30 people at a time would go in, experience this um, stroboscopically driven hallucinatory journey, and then come out into a reflection area and sort of think about what they experienced, talk to each other, write about it, and so on. And overall, we had about forty thousand people through the dream machine um in London, Belfast, Edinburgh, and Cardiff in 2022. And we're hoping to we're hoping to sort of take it, take it on tour. But what's super we, we were very, very careful not to not describe it as a psychedelic experience. You know, partly for this expectation thing. But of course, as soon as anyone saw it, they immediately said, like, you know, the Guardian review was something like this is as close to psychedelic trip government. Government-funded psychedelic trials you ever get was like that was that was the knee-jerk uh, response to it, which, which of course then feeds back to people's expectations. In my you know, own sort of introspective analysis, the experience in the Dream Machine is very, very different from a psychedelic experience. It has in common that it's not normal. <laughs> it has yeah. in common that yeah. you're you know you're having an experience which seems to be somehow internally generated, but beyond that, the the, the specific details. very different but just to sort of close the loop on this one of the things we want to do is look at the potential efficacy of this in treatment of things like depression we had a lot of anecdotal reports from people saying how it helped them with depression again we made no claims or or promises about this at all um it this could be just because it was a very nice thing to do. I mean, the whole setup was was nicely designed and you were well looked after. So it, it could just be, you know, you go somewhere, you have an unexpectedly nice time, you feel better. But there might be, you know, the the the, the thing we want to just examine a bit more closely, and I have no um you know, I, I don't know how it will turn out um at all, but it could be that the there's a shared sort of antidepressant mechanism between something like dream machine and psychedelics, which is the breaking yourself out of your normal perceptual habit. Yeah, and if you yeah. experience, if you're able to directly experience your brain as the source of experience itself, which yeah. both the dream machine and psychedelics can do, maybe that is the sort of the common mechanistic pathway, which, which is totally, uh. which is amusing. It's totally the opposite to what some companies are doing and, in the States, which is trying to develop non-psychedelic psychedelics where they preserve right. something of the pharmacological effect, but, but totally try and get rid of any experiential effects so it'll be easier to get through regulation and so on. So if you like, you've got these two interesting things. We, we, we're betting on it's the experience that matters, not the pharmacological mechanism. Or, and then you have these other people saying exactly the opposite. Of course, you might need both for, re, for, for real change.
2: But at the a material level, at the level of the brain, could both of those possibilities look the same?
1: Um, well, the the strobe light is. It may you know there may be brain. We'll be having. There's certainly something it's doing to the brain because your experience is changing. That's what I mean.
2: I suppose. I mean, given that a lot of the the research, the clinical research, and the neuroscientific research is pointing to has had this sort of magical. Referring to synaptogenesis as the yeah. sort of as the key, I mean, presumably both of those routes could lead to synaptogenesis, identical synaptogenesis.
1: Possibly, I doubt it would be identical. I think there's a couple of animal models, you know, people doing strobe lights on on mice and things, um, showing potentially some increased plasticity. You know, so that the brain becomes a bit more changeable. But I think it would be very different. You know, for instance one of the things about psychedelics is there seems to be quite an extended window post psychedelic yeah, yeah. you know, post the acute period of administration where the brain yeah. is more changeable. Yeah, um yeah. you know I very much doubt that would be the case in the the strobe light thing. It's also, you know, it's tem- it's it's very constrict. The light starts your experience changes and the light stops you 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 know you're straight back. Um yeah, yeah. so it's very um temporally circumscribed but yeah i mean there could be so so this is something we want to you know look further into what's what's happening in the brain in the in the moment and and later on but it's it's a surprisingly simple way of of inducing an altered experience and and i think i'm right yeah yeah
2: I, I, i i experienced it at the very end of my research and i've done way too many trips in too short a time and so for me the experience Whilst very interesting, was on the mild end of the spectrum. But I think mm-hmm. I'm right in saying is that you were self and hate, health and safety concerns restricted you to certain narrow parameters <laughs> with your equipment.
1: Yeah, that, that that's right. That's right. So when we were developing, we ought to move on to the Q and A in a second, actually. But sure. But yeah, when we were developing it, we you know we had the luxury of just being able to sort of experiment on ourselves and do more or less what we wanted. Right. And um, yeah, so there are versions of it which are much much less (laughs) miles okay Okay. um okay so i think in the interest of time we've i sorry we ended up this was always going to happen um we've got a ton of questions i hadn't seen a lot of them come in so i'm just going to skate quickly through them and just see if there are any that that are roughly the same um well let me just start while i look at them i'm just gonna punt one to you andy that you can. That came yeah. up early that I'd been I'd seen already, which is which is a common question I think. So it's it's from anonymous attendee and it's asking how addictive are psychedelics? Is there a danger prescribing them to those who struggle with addiction?
2: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, uh, they're being u- they're being reused now as treatments for addiction, and I think at the physiological level, uh, they've fa- they've found to be, they're found to be robustly non-addictive. I would say that I, at a behavioral level, I've met people that I, clinically, I, I'm circumspect because they seem to be, these people seem to be very dependent on using psychedelics. And, you know, psychedelics have taken a niche in their lives, which you might think of as they're over somewhat over-reliant on psychedelic experiences psychologically. But in terms of traditional, traditional definitions of addiction, no, I think they're, they're sort of robustly non-addictive
1: yeah that's that's I mean I think there's um I think I've noticed something similar. It's sort of a meta level of addiction, isn't it where people yeah. come to rely on the psychedelic intervention to yeah. to sort of fix them for a while, but it's not a permanent fix, so then they end up going back for, that, for more. That,
2: that might be important for clinical mm. research because there's been a lot of talk as you say about this synaptic window that's open for a few weeks. But no one's really sure how robust the changes are after that, and mm-hmm. it may be that the fact that certain people are having to take them an awful lot to to get where they want to go uh, experientially, that might be you know that might be an important piece of research to be done.
1: Okay, so there's one very quick question from Thomas Pack, which which I thought was first an insult to my coherence, which says Anil Seth, what are you drinking? But I think it's actually <laughs> a it's beetroot juice. It's almost oh, gone. Okay. The, just so people <laughs> yeah. know, beetroot juice. Question from Charles Kingsmill, he said Anil outlined the idea of everyday consciousness being filtered or calibrated to offer evolutionary survival value, um, presumably at the individual level. Was Andy suggesting that psychedelics can offer survival value at a grander scale, humanity, planetary health? How might that work? Is there something, is there a well, that was, that was evolutionary the, that was... story to tell?
2: Well that's <laughs>
1: I'm not gonna make
2: that claim personally, but and that in fact it was that slight framing of things in terms of uh ecological consciousness that was one of the things that contributed to my skepticism that here was here was a green alternative to SSRIs that mm-hmm. could bring us to a shared understanding of what we were doing to ourselves and to our planet. That, that seemed to be somehow built into at least certain aspects of the psychedelic experience. And I think, I think that um, it's, it's probably more likely statistically that psychedelics will just illustrate what a, our treatment and use and commercialization of psychedelics are more likely to illustrate uh, what a mess we're in. But that doesn't denounce that they have this tremendous potential to shed light on our interdependence that's that's definitely the case but how we build that into the materiality of our lives mm. is is not going to be resolved by psychedelics
1: mm-hmm. um maybe a related question from anonymous again is you talked you do talk about this in your in your book, and we've talked about it a bit today already but Maybe it's about what are your thoughts on capitalism and psychedelics? Not so much from a science medicine point of view, but the use misuse exploitation of traditions from non-capitalist cultures, like EG tech bros on ayahuasca. Is there, what's going on there?
2: Yeah, I think that's what I'm, that's what when I talk about uh, how psychedelics might show us what a mess we're in, it's exactly that kind (laughs) of thing that we've take. We've taken a, this sort of precious, uh, this precious tradition, these precious medicines, that some of which have a history of thousands of years, we found them to be useful uh, to treat certain conditions that of, are of very modern and very, very much to do with what it's like to be an individual in capitalist society. And now uh, we've kind of created, or in danger of creating, a kind of Disneyland, a real comic book mess uh, out, out out of these, without any kind of sense of uh, tradition or ritual or care for where they'd come from.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, you say in your book, you have this very nice phrase of instrumentalizing of experience. Is, yeah. Is that, is that what you're talking about here or is that something else? Well,
2: I think, I think that's definitely part, I think that's definitely part, of, I mean, I, that's definitely part of uh, um, a tendency that we have to create, you know, that psychedelics just become, uh, the latest biohack by which we uh, recreate or optimize, or just a, a more elaborate way of plugging into entertainment. Mm. Uh, and they, they, outside of a clinical sphere, they may be just ways that we can distract ourselves, stop ourselves getting bored, for example. Uh, and I think, yeah, and they're very handy in that way. They require us to be passive. We can, uh, you know, we can. Um, stay in our, in our living rooms without engaging in things. Again, they can, they can just duplicate in a perhaps more, uh, exciting way, briefly, uh, our existing habits rather than unstick us from the preoccupations or the mm-hmm. habitual thought patterns that you talked about earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's no, yeah. that danger. Yeah. There's a couple of questions here and, um, about bad trips. And you know, maybe this is something where, where you, you have something to, I know in some of your descriptions in, in pen trips, they're not all glorious journeys of beautiful discoveries. Yeah. So the question yeah, is, I- do we understand enough about the causes of, of bad trips? Can they be attributed to adulteration or can it be actually dangerous for some people with, with some psychological issues? And if so, who? What, what do we know about bad trips?
2: Well we just we we know that they're far more common than was initially the, the say in two thousand and eighteen when mm-hmm. uh, Michael Pollan was reporting on the the evidence they were very much underreported since then there's been sort of quite a significant and important research done on just how widespread bad trips can be and I, I think the global ayahuasca survey um, of eleven thousand participants indicated that more than ten percent of people have what they call a serious adverse experience during an ayahuasca ceremony. So that that's a real clinical risk. That's a very significant portion of uh, portion of people. What causes a bad trip is still you know uh, very much under researched. But there's definitely already we know that certain diagnoses, uh, particularly psychotic diagnoses, mm-hmm. um, are increased risk factors the the nature of the, set, the the nature of the setting clearly clearly has an impact there are, i i certainly had a, a, a bad experience where um uh, the facilitator was um just was clearly not of sound mind himself and mm-hmm. was uh was was talking uh, was talking messianically about his ability to um uh however bad things got uh they would be redeemed by his messianic messianic knowledge so i think there's something you know there's a lot of the a lot of a, a lot of psychedelic experiences are taking out uh taking place in uncontrolled environments which certainly mm-hmm. is a cause for risk but even in control even in controlled environments there's been an under acknowledgement of risk so far for sure
1: isn't there a, a deeper question here about what what is a bad trip and what is bad about a bad trip? There's another thing Absolutely. that you write in your book, which I think it's a, it's a sort of more general um, quote that's always in the air in psychedelic discussions, which is that you get the trip that you need, not the trip that you want. And is there not the possibility that what may be an unpleasant, a very unpleasant experience, you know, a bad trip, which, which is scary and disturbing and distressing in very many ways, might actually be therapeutically, if if integrated in the right way afterwards, might be exactly what the person needs in order to make progress psychologically. I know in my own experience, I one of my psychological experiences would definitely be described as a bad trip, but it's actually one that I look back on as being one of the most positively transformative, um, in part because of the way I discussed it and, and talked about it afterwards.
2: I think that's, that's certainly true. And I think something even more fundamental than that, perhaps, which is, which is and this is, this, this is something that comes through strongly in a lot of your work, is that you are making a decision about, as I said earlier, a trip is constituted by a million billion bits of information. So to say a bad trip means that you've smoothed out all of that information into mm-hmm. one account. And you are probably doing that during the trip. So there's something about how your expectations or your decisions about an experience are then shaping what's to come rather than that kind of more equanimous uh, ability to decide what something is as it's occurring rather than pre- preordaining it by a priori
1: yeah yeah no that makes sense that makes sense yeah and I mean, this does get back to the role of expectations in shaping all of these things, doesn't it yeah and yeah part of i remember i think you know I thought about this a lot, but in a couple of my experiences i I wasn't aware of quite how many expectations and um sort of not only about the experience but about my Reasons for doing it, my reasons to be there. These are all parts of expectations that you bring as well. Yeah, and I I was sort of bringing tons of these things to this to this context. I I think that was problematic.
2: Well, I mean, I think this is where I mean, forgive me for saying this, but you know, just as risk has been under nuanced, Mm -hmm. then the ideas, uh, the idea of of set and setting and intentionality, which are all kind of commonplaces in psychedelic circles are just under 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 understood Mm that there's there's not sufficient nuance in what constitutes a set how expectations interweave everything and may play a huge role or perhaps no role at all in intentionality for example
1: yeah yeah no i completely agree so we're coming i think we got one minute one minute left before the top of the hour. What's your favourite psychedelic?
2: For me, it was Wachuma, mescaline. And it was the sort of least visual one, but it just right. felt like my whole body turned into a heart. And uh, everything that I saw somehow revealed itself as just what it was. There was nothing complicated about it. It was just a direct connection. What about you?
1: Um, I think it was um, it was LSD. I haven't tried as many as you have. Okay. But just the perceptual, overwhelming perceptual beauty of of that experience and transformational ego just, was just wonderful.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Good. I think we're I think we're at the end. I'm apologize to everyone who asked questions we didn't get to. Um I didn't realize how hard it would be to keep talking to Andy while trying to read questions. It's um it's dual, dual yeah. tasking. And so some of the longer questions didn't get asked purely because I couldn't concentrate long enough to to read them while still listening to uh, what what we were talking about. But thank you for for asking them. There's lots of fascinating questions here. um, And I hope our discussion sheds at least a little bit of light on the issues. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much, Neil. Thanks, everyone.
0: Neil thank you so much that was fascinating and you've given us so many new ways to think about these questions these big questions so really thank you Thank you so much for this evening. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for attending. Remember that you can order copies of Andy and Anil's books from Newham Bookshop. Details about how to do that are available in the chat. Uh, And we'll be back next week with our first uh, of a new series with Kew Gardens and Rathbones. We have a panel on health and nature with Anne Bicklay and David Montgomery, among other excellent speakers. So please join us for that. That's next Monday at 6.30. Andy, Anil, thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.